Hello, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast. In last week's episode, ABB's robotics expert, Mark Segura, described the global robotics landscape in great detail. And as I said at the end of that episode, we're going to take that story a step further into the future by looking at the AI that powers those robots. Joining me to discuss this is Peter Chen, my co-founder and the CEO of Covariant. Before founding Covariant, Peter was a research scientist at OpenAI and a PhD student at Berkeley. So Peter, we've been on this journey together for a long time now. Your PhD work at Berkeley was in my lab, then we were at OpenAI at the same time, and we co-founded and are now working together at Covariant. So I think at this point, you're my closest collaborator for the past five years and counting. I'm so excited to get to sit down with you for this podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be on this podcast. So Peter, in fact, we've been on a lot of this journey together. Your PhD work at Berkeley was in my lab. Then we were at OpenAI at the same time, and we co-founded and are now together at Covariant. So I think at this point, you're my closest collaborator on so many fronts for the past five years. At some point, we decided to leave and start Covariant. And I'm really curious, kind of your, your side of the story there. How did that come about for you? So if I think about what was one of the initial starting point of Covariant, it actually can be traced back to a very specific moment. So that very specific moment was a dinner that I had with Rocky Duan, who is our CTO of Covariant, who was also a close collaborator at OpenAI and at Berkeley. I remember sitting down with him in a kind of a hole-in-the-wall restaurant in Oakland, Chinatown. And we were having this discussion of, we just published a paper that pioneered meta-learning in reinforcement learning, which is really the technique to teach robots the ability to learn quickly. So like it's not just teaching robots one skill and like spending a lot of time, a lot of data to teach the robot to do one thing, but really teaching the robot to pick up new techniques quickly along the way, just like how a person would, like you can train a peep, you can train a person for a couple minutes and then they can learn to do a task, maybe at a high level, maybe not super fluently yet, but the ability to acquire a new skill very quickly. So we just published a paper in that. And then we're discussing, well, where, where can we take it, right? So like now at a very, very high level, we have the ability to teach robots new skills quickly. That seems to close the gap between what AI robotics can do and what people could do, at least at a very, very high level. But what are the concrete next steps? And the thing that really struck us in that discussion was we actually didn't know. Like, so like we know the idea that teaching robots the ability to pick up new skills, to adapt to new scenarios quickly is important. But we don't actually know what does that mean at one layer down. And like from there, we basically came to the conclusion that we need to approach this goal in a very pragmatic sense, like as opposed to saying abstractly talking about how to teach robot new skills. We need to think about like, what does that mean at one level deeper? Like what manipulation tasks? What are the objects that you need to manipulate? At what precision you need to do it? At what cycle time you need to do it? And what is the change in the environment that you would, you would see? And what is the type of robots? What is the type of hardware that is needed? And there's a huge, huge gap that exists there. And so, Recognizing there was a gap between the abstract pursuit in the academic realm and the huge body of knowledge about the actual problems in industry, in customer side, recognizing that gap was one of the, I would call it like pivotal moment of like what led to the founding of Covariant. 
Uh, I can talk a little bit more about that later, but that's that I would say is like maybe the high level answer to your to your question. That's really interesting. And well, first, I didn't know the hole in the wall restaurant story in Oakland. So I now want to go there with you and things open back up. Do you remember which restaurant it was? Oh, yeah. Like I, I guess you very distinctively remember which restaurant it was. Okay. Well, l- let's go there when things open back up and, and uh, celebrate there a bit. Now, you said there was this gap, but at the same time, if you look online and you say, okay, where are the robots right now? How many robots are there? In fact, you'll find that there are millions of robots already out there. So can you say a bit more about what do you mean about there being a, a gap? Because there are millions of robots already doing things. So the first lens of looking at this gap is starting from customer problems. Like, so like you said, like there are a lot of robots that are already out there that are doing a lot of tasks for us. The gap from that perspective is really recognizing that there are two kinds of robots. There's a kind of robots that is good at repeating something. And then there's a kind of robot that is making decisions and moving autonomously. Like, so most of the robots that are out there are in the first category. So they are repetitive robots that are good at repeating one thing that you teach the robot. So like move from point A to point B and then drop an item off and then do that again, again, and a million times. Like if you go into a car manufacturing plant uh, and an electronics uh, manufacturing side, you tend to see robots like those, like, and they are good at repeating something. But what robots have not been good at, making decisions autonomously, perceiving the world around them, and also learning and adapting along the way. Like that has been the part that robots have not been able to do at scale. What's also very interesting about that is that gap exists primarily as an AI challenge. So like we have robots that are already do good at doing the repetitive motion. Like so the hardware, the mechatronics, like all of these like basic pieces of the robot system is already there. But what's missing is the AI side. Like, so you need AI scientists, you need AI researchers that can build advances that allow robots to move and make decisions autonomously in the world. And so this is maybe the gap from a problem statement standpoint. And then there's, you can also see the gap from the people that can solve it standpoint. Like, so like when we talk about a lot of these advances being made in AI and, and in robotics in the academic field, like you have a small set of folks that have the ability to build those AI that are really not intimately familiar with the customer problems or the problems in the market that need to be solved. Like, so that's the other lens of the gap that exists. Like, so from the research community, from the science community, from the community that has the ability to build the technology, they are not connected to the problems. And for the people that experience the problems, like they can be warehouse operators, they can be manufacturing operation managers, like the people that want robots that are actually more autonomous, that are not just doing repetitive motion, they don't have the skills and they don't have the ability to build the AI that can solve the other side of the equation. So this is in part why Covariant exists. Like so, so we exist to bring really best-in-class AI scientists to the specific real-world problems that need to be solved. Now, to be fair, when we started Covariant, we were really only AI scientists. We were not experts in the real-world problems out there. Can you say a little bit about how we went about bridging the gap? We spent a lot of time visiting a lot of physical operations across a wide set of industries, like so manufacturing, logistics, agriculture, restaurants, recycling centers. Like We visited a lot of industries and met with a lot of leaders from this 
specific businesses to understand what are the pain points that they are having um, in their operations and understand where is it the most likely point for AI robotics as a technology to meet the problems that they need to solve. And so we have probably talked to multiple dozens of companies and, and visited many, many different operations um, before we arrive at the current focus, which is logistics as being the core of where we spend time. Um, but we did a very systematic analysis that allows us to build a multi-year roadmap on like where we started roll that technology over time to have more and more coverage. Now, I think everybody's heard the word logistics, but logistics are not very visible to us in our everyday lives. Can you say a bit more about, you know, how does logistics affect our lives and what's going on behind the scenes there? When I think about the future of robotics, I think about the future of robotics that some would exist in the foreground of our life, like where we can see them visibly, like maybe like robots in your home that can do laundry for you and robots in a cafe or in a restaurant that cook food for you. But as well as a lot of robots in the background of our life that we don't see, and you know, like logistics as being one example of that. And where does that start to impact our life? Like I would say, looking back in the last year, 2020, is a good example of like how logistics really power our life. Like when it's not easy to go outside, when you need to rely on online shopping and like have all the goods that you need in your life delivered to you. Like the machine that power all of these is what we broadly define as logistics. Right? So if you think about like what goes on in logistics, there are two aspects of it. Like one is the movement of goods. Like so like trucking a bunch of pallets from one place to another or in a warehouse, like picking up one object and then like running it to the shipping dock and then putting it into a loading cage that then gets shipped to your house is the movement piece. And then there's the manipulation piece of logistics, like where you order one iPhone and one charger and then one iPhone case, like picking each of those objects up and then nicely packing it in a box and get shipping that to you is another key piece that happens in logistics. That is the manipulation in logistics. And so when we think about like, like obviously there's, places that AI robotics can impact this whole chain of operations across the board. But what we focus on at Covariant um, is on the manipulation piece. It's on the, how do you build uh, AI that can manipulate all the items that go into a warehouse, that go into a distribution center. And if you actually think about that, that actually basically means you need to build AI that can manipulate every item that exists in the world. Because like at one point or another, those items get manufactured and those items get distributed and store in the warehouses before they get sent over to customers or a store. You say any item, how many items can that be? In a typical scenario that we deal with in a even moderately sized warehouse where covariant robot is deployed, like typically you need to handle tens of thousands of distinct kinds of items. And they also change. Like, so if you, especially if you work in any fashion related industry, it's like, it's very common to have 70%, 80% changeover quarter to quarter just because what's trending has, has, has changed. And like, so it's really, really a wide set of items and, and, and products that you need to deal with. And also that is changing over time as different things become trendy, as new things get designed. Uh, and so it's really, really a complex problem that require very advanced AI to solve. Now, I imagine when a lot of people think about warehouse, they think about a place where you might walk around and there's a bunch of shelves. And a lot of modern warehouses are often very different. Can you say a little bit about what the most modern warehouses look like? 
so going back to the earlier concepts that I laid out, in a, in a warehouse, there is the movement of goods and then there's manipulation of goods. Uh, and so in a modern warehouse where people have put a lot of work into improving the efficiency, improving the level of automation, what you would find is that in a modern warehouse, the movement of goods is largely automated. Right? And it's automated by a set of existing technologies like conveyor belts or mobile robots that move from point A to point B or shuttle systems that's like, think of them as like robots on a rail. Like basically like there are this mechanical and electrical systems that can perform the movement of goods because you can perform the movement of goods in a standardized container. Like for example, you can move a box around or you can uh, move the whole shelf around. Like, so if you look at like what uh, Kiva Robotics um, um, has done, because you're moving a standardized container that allows you to build systems that don't need to be AI enabled, right? They don't need to reason about like different kinds of items that it need to process. If you go into a modern warehouse, the movement of goods is largely automated. Like, so you don't see people walking around and running around because the movement part is largely done. And the part that is unsolved is the manipulation part, right? So like I can solve the movement problem because I can standardize the container, but you cannot standardize the type of items that you manipulate with. Like, so an iPhone is packaged differently from a water bottle. Like these, like, unless you say everything, like just go into a rigid cube, uh, which would be extremely wasteful. But unless you do that, like you are bound to face the diversity of different kinds of items that exist in the world. So which is what makes the manipulation problem a very, very interesting problem from an AI perspective, because this is a problem that doesn't have shortcut. Like there's not something that says, oh, like we can just structure my environment a little bit more so that I can skip the AI part of the challenge. I can just hard code my system to do certain things. Like that doesn't exist in the world of manipulation, which is what makes it a fascinating AI problem. And at Covariant is also what we believe, what makes it a great entry for AI robotics to get into the world. Now, if we're getting a little bit more specific, on the Covariant website, there is a list of use cases. They're called order picking, induction, and putwall. That's what's being offered. Can you say a bit more about what are those exactly? Yeah, so what those specific use cases represent a specific set of manual manipulation tasks that people are doing with their hands, like even though they're extremely repetitive type of work that our customers struggle to find people to fill those positions. And so what order picking represents is the example that I gave earlier, right? So when you place an order online that I want to get one iPhone, one charger, one iPhone case, like so that needs to be picked and packed before it can get shipped out. And so what order picking as a use case means to do is that exact operation. Like it's like, how do you pick and pack an order? And parcel induction represents another class of manipulation tasks, not in the warehouses, but in the express couriers and parcel and mail delivery providers, like where people are shipping millions and hundreds of millions of packages. And all of those packages need to be put onto a machine and get rerouted to different places. Oh, this goes to East Coast, like that goes to West Coast. There's a lot of repetitive labor that goes in, okay, I get this large pile of unstructured packages and the packages can have like all of different kinds of packaging materials, geometry. And like, how do I pick and place those into a downstream sortation machine in a very efficient way? 
that represents another manipulation task or use case in the puzzle space. And then the last one, put wall, is the operation is essentially a pick and sort operation. And this is a very, very common manipulation process in a um, what we call a low automation warehouses um, scenario, where you're trying to either sort a batch of items into different orders, right? So for example, like I have this whole box of items in front of me and like these two items go to order one that gets shipped to customer one. And then like there's another three items that go into order two that gets shipped to customer number two. And like the process of like separating these items and sorting them into their appropriate destination is a very common step. And that can be used for sorting orders that can be used to sorting delivery zip codes. Like this set of orders will get routed to this zip code. This set of orders get routed to another set of zip code. And what's pretty interesting looking across the board is that like even though there are three distinct manipulation use cases that exist there, if you actually build the right AI system, you can build the same AI that can solve all of these challenges together because the core of the challenges are the same. Like, so it's all about the ability to understand what's in the world, where are the things, and how to best approach manipulate them. And so like, even though there are three distinct use cases that solve different customer manipulation problems, there's actually a same AI that can be used to approach these problems. Now, the same AI goes behind these different problems. By the way, these problems are listed on the Kaveran website, but there's many companies. I mean, this, this, there is a general need and, and there's generally happening a lot of work in this space to try to build order picking solutions, try to build induction stations, try to build put walls. A lot of effort is happening in many places. Peter, you said behind the scenes, AI plays a role. Can you say a bit more about that? Why do we need an AI system to do these kind of things? Yeah, so the key to understand that is to understand the difference between a static environment versus a dynamic environment. And so in a static environment, let's say, all I need to do is this cup always appear at this place and I can pick it up with the exact same motion and move it into another place and then another cup will pop up. Like if I can do that, then this is basically a static environment. And all you need to do is just repeat that again and again. All of the use cases that we just talked about, like be it order picking, parcel induction, or put wall, all of these use cases, you are facing a dynamic environment. The robots are basically would never see the exact same scenario twice. Like, so um, how is that the case? Like, let, let's just think through it a little bit more, even in order picking, like where, where we are trying to pack customer orders. And let's forget about the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of different kinds of items that can exist in one warehouse. Let's just imagine one item that can exist in the warehouse. Like, but where can that item appear? Like it can appear in the center of the bin and it can appear at the edge of the bin and it can appear with any orientation. That's a high amount of variation already because like now my system, they cannot just repeat the same motion again and again, it actually needs to understand, well, where is that object? Like where, where is it placed in a tote or in a bin? And in that configuration, what is the best way to get there? So there's already some variation that exists there. But now think of it as one object, but instead of just one, uh, the single kind of object, but instead of just one object in a bin, now imagine hundreds of them being piled in a bin. Like now the variation has grown exponentially, like because like it's not just one object that can appear in different position. Now it's like hundreds of objects that can appear in different geometric configurations. And each geometric configuration requires a different decision 
a different motion to be performed in order to pick and extract and move an item in an efficient way. So everything we have talked about is only one item. But now, like, let's take that one item into hundreds of thousands and millions of different kinds of items. Then now you're talking about a huge variety of scenarios that your robot needs to face with. And what are the decisions that you need to make uh, in which one of these are going to be different? And you need to have the ability to perceive the world and make decisions in a robust way. And that's where AI comes into play. Like, so it's the ability to handle variation, diversity, and long-tail scenarios that exist in the world is what calls for AI. And taking a step back, when we think about like all of these manipulation challenges that we talk about, all the picking, puzzle induction, and put wall, like all of them exhibit this kind of dynamic environment and high diversity in the scenarios that you need to encounter and solve. And that's where AI comes into play. It's not just AI, but like, like very, very AI with very, very high level of autonomy because like an AI that can solve just a small subset of the scenarios, again, doesn't matter. Like you ultimately need to solve almost all of the scenarios to be useful in the real world. So I like this explanation a lot, Peter. It also reminds me of maybe something that a lot of people are more directly familiar with. And I'm curious if you can make some analogies there, which is self-driving cars, which also require AI. And can you make a connection between the challenges? So at a very, very high level, self-driving cars are also robot systems. Um, and like in that, in that lens, a lot of the challenges are very, very shared, right? So like if you build a self-driving car in a closed track, and it always just need to perform the same motion again and again. It's a challenging engineering problem, but it's not a challenging AI problem. What makes self-driving car difficult is again, the um, dynamic nature of the environment. Like when you want to build a robo taxi that drive in San Francisco, there will be people that jaywalk, there will be cars that don't follow traffic rule, and there will be scenarios that you have just never foresee or imagined, like maybe like a turkey running on the road. Like there's all of this dynamic nature of the environment and the diversity of the scenarios that make self-driving car difficult. And the same thing is true for us in the robotic manipulation space. Um, but there are also a couple notable differences. Like, so a couple notable differences are the risk in a self-driving space is extremely high. Like, so if your car make a mistake, like this is a, a multi-ton metal that would hit a person or, or, or some other things that would likely cause a lot of damage. But in the manipulation space, there's relatively a higher risk tolerance. Like, so let's say a robot damaged an item, a robot like drops an item, or a robot makes another kind of mistake. Like obviously there are monetary value lost there, but it's not as severe as what a self-driving car damage can be. And so that's, I would say like one high level difference between the self-driving space and the manipulation space, despite the similarities. And then another, maybe more technology-centric view uh, about how these two are different comes into uh, a very pithy statement that I, I still, from the field, I don't actually know where it's attributed to. But uh, essentially, the statement is, in driving, what you want to do is avoid contact. Right? So like, essentially, like, all you want to do is like, avoid hitting a person, hitting a car, or hitting an obstacle uh, on the road. In manipulation, the hard thing about it is you are seeking contact. Right. So instead of saying, oh, I just need to know roughly things are and like the best way to avoid them. Now I need to actually make contact with objects in the world with the specific hardware embodiment that I have. Like, am I using a suction cup? Am I using a gripper? Like, what is the best way for that hardware embodiment to interact with the world? 
like how hard can I push this or like where's the best way to make contact? And so that I would say is another high level difference from the technology perspective, the difference between self-driving and manipulation. It seems when you make contact, you introduce even more variation because all of a sudden, like a lot of things can happen that otherwise you don't have to worry about. Exactly. So um, there are a lot, like it introduces a whole dimension of interactions that don't exist in self-driving. There are a couple more implications that's attached to that. One is about precision, right? So let's say if I'm a self-driving car AI and I want to avoid hitting a person, I don't exactly know how far this person away from me. So like I can play safe. Like, so there's like a larger margin of error in terms of precision, but that's not the case when it comes to manipulation. It's like, I have this transparent glass that I cannot see very clearly. Like there's not much room to play safe, like, because I need to know exactly where it is in order to touch it and handle it efficiently. Like I cannot say, oh, it might be like two centimeters away from me and let me just stop there. But if you stop there, then you would actually never make contact and you would never handle the object. And same is true. Like if I, if I miscalculate like where this is away from me, like I can totally crash the item. And so the tolerance and the precision is much higher. So there's a very hard AI problem or many hard AI problems under the hood. What does that mean for real world deployments though? Can you say something about, does Coverant have any deployments? What are they? This is a very, very broad question. And maybe let me try to tackle it in a couple different layers. Like, so at a highest level, what does it mean to solve these problems in the real world? One is that you need to have continuously learning systems. Like, so you cannot build a rigid and static system that doesn't change over time because like new scenarios are going to come up, like new products, new items are going to be introduced in the world. So what that means is that in order to make this type of systems work in the real world, you need to have a continuously learning system that learn from its own mistakes and successes and fine tune itself from there. Going back to your question, like at Covariant, we have robots in the world that is doing live orders and like fulfilling customer orders and adding a lot of value. Um, and one of the core characteristics of those systems is that they're always learning. They are not a static rigid system that doesn't change over time. Like they adapt to how the world is changing and they learn from the mistakes that they make and continue to improve. So I would say like that's one core characteristics, like one core requirement of how to deploy the systems into the world. And another core characteristic is maybe something that sits at the core of the covariant technology philosophy is we don't see it as possible to build strong AI systems for robots if you don't have real-world systems that's doing real customer works. The reason for that is because there's only so much diversity and variations that you can simulate in your lab. Like, so going back to our earlier discussion on like what, what makes this problem an AI problem, you need to solve the variation, you need to solve the diversity. So the flip side is also true. If you don't have the diversity, if you don't have the variations, you don't have the data and you don't have the learning that is necessary to build the AI. So going back to your question of like, do we have systems out there in the production? And the answer is yes. And it's not just yes, because that's obviously important on how we create value and capture value, but it's also important from a technology development perspective. If you don't have systems that's seeing real customer products, that is actually seeing the huge amount of huge amount of diversity and variation, you cannot build AI for it. Like if you don't have data, you have your system have nothing to learn from. 
I like your reference to, to the importance of data, and it reminds me of our early conversations back around when we were starting Covariant, and we were talking, wait, if we want to solve robotics with the current wave of AI, which is so data and compute-driven, but especially data-driven, we can never get the data in our research labs. We have to go in the real world to solve the problem. There is there's no other way to do it. But there's also the compute and, and the learning. Just the data is not enough. Can you say a bit more about what, what's happening behind the scenes? Covariant Robot has all this data. Sure. What happens next? How does it improve itself? Like data is really only part of the question. Like So when we think about AI advances and when we think about the robot's brain getting better, there are actually two types of improvements that are happening. One type of improvement is, think of them as the brain structure getting better. And then the other type is the brain's experience gets better. Like how do we distinguish between the two, these two types of learning and improvement? Um, so a very easy way to, to think about this is, so English to me is a second language. And so I learn English through schoolwork and using it in work. And like, this is an example of something that's in experience expansion or accumulation of experiences. Like, so um, my DNA didn't change, like my, my brain structure, at least at a DNA level, um, um, didn't change. But what changed is like the experience that I have accumulated that allowed me to gain new tasks. But like, for example, like you can play my experience to maybe, for example, a dog's brain. Like, so like you can have the dog experience the same set of English-related language interactions that I have had, but it's highly unlikely for a dog's brain to acquire English, well, at probably any level of proficiency. And the reason for that is because the structure of the brain fundamentally limits what type of learning you can extract from experiences. So we have talked about having robots gain data and gain experiences from real-world operation. And so that's the experience accumulation part. But you also need a brain structure that is capable enough to absorb those data. And so this is the other piece that go into what we focus on at Covariant. And it's like maybe what, Peter, you were referring to as the compute and the AI aspect of it, other than the data aspect. So the core of that there is really think about how do you build flexible brain structure? How do you build flexible AI architecture that can absorb the learnings in the data, that can really tease out the patterns in the data so that you could improve your decision-making? And this is a large part of what our research effort has focused on. Like, so we have built a really strong research team. And if we look at the cumulative research breakthrough and advances that we have made in the last few years, I would say that's a dozen PhD thesis of work, of work that have gone into it. The places of improvement all fall under this brain structure category. Like, so it's not like we are engineering uh, more experiences or data for uh, the brain to consume. But no, we are improving the brain structure itself. And so when you feed it with the appropriate data, it can actually learn it. And so that is a, another very, very core part of how the brain and how the AI improves over time. Can you give an example of what's some brain structure improvement that the team has come up with and what's the resulting capability that maybe didn't exist before? It's a great question. It's like, it actually, it's, uh, it touches on things that we don't normally talk a lot about um, publicly from Covariant. So this actually might be a first for us to showcase some of this capability. So one example capability that we build is, for example, the ability to understand the world 
3D in a very robust manner, right? So um, we talk about it's important for uh, robots to have a precise understanding of the 3D world in order to make contact and manipulate things that exist in the world. There are a lot of challenges um, associated with this. And one of the challenge, for example, comes into perceiving objects that are hard to see. Like what are objects that are hard to see? For example, objects that are transparent, like for example, this cup, like this mug is transparent. And like, so even visually to a human eye, like it's hard to precisely know where is it away from me. But because we have so much knowledge of interacting with this type of items, like we know that based on reflection, based on the watermark on it, like I have a lot of additional knowledge that I can acquire to infer where the cup is. And so traditionally, in a traditional robotic system, your 3D perception of the world is largely a hard-coded system. Like, so I shine some light on, a, um, um, on the object and I, I interpret like where does that light fall onto. And then from there, I can run some mechanical calculations to know like how far is this object away from me. But at Covalent, we do it completely differently. Like, so we actually have a artificial neural net that estimate and infer how far is an object away from the robot? How is this a brain structure improvement is because if we think about the traditional robotic system approach, it's basically a rigid system. Like your robots can acquire millions and tens of millions more hours of operation on how it misses a certain object, how it does not get to touch a certain object because it's hard to perceive where it is in the 3D world. You will never learn from it because your 3D understanding of the world is a mechanical set of calculations that don't change even if you have a lot more data. But what we have done at Covariant is we change that mechanical set of calculations into an artificial neural net that can actually learn from data. And that allows us to solve long tail issues that are traditionally unsolvable and solve those in a data-driven automatic improvement way. And this is one example of like how we improve the brain structure so that it can learn and lavish experiences that it accumulates. Are there any other examples you can share? A couple other examples fall into the category of, like we talk about, you need to perceive the world on where things are. Like there's another characteristic that makes it challenging is understanding the world and how to manipulate objects. So even after I perceive that there's an object here, um, but what is the best way to grab it? And like the best way to grab it also depends on like what is my hardware embodiment? Like what is the hardware that I'm using to uh, interact with this object? So you can approach this problem again in a very quite heuristic or rule-based decision-making way. Like where you say, okay, if I see these scenarios, um, I would tell the robot to always go to the object center and pick up something in the object center. Well, well, what if you are trying to pick up a donut like where the center of the object is actually empty? Like there's actually nothing that you can go there and, and pick it up. And so like you see a lot of these heuristics and rules falling down. And you might say, okay, like how do, why don't I turn it into a, um, maybe what is called an imitation learning problem. Like, so instead of like doing hard coded rules on what the robot should do, maybe let me tell the robot like what I would do as a person. Um, so, and I have the robots imitate what I would do uh, as a person. That also turns out to be very difficult, right? Because like in this type of decision-making problem, there is typically no single correct answer. And so like, it's actually very difficult for a person to say, oh, this is how I would do it. But that's actually not a complete description because there might be many possible solutions to it. And like different people might like make that decisions differently. 
And so what we have done at Covariant is really formulate that as a flexible reinforcement learning problem that actually allows the robots to learn flexible decision-making rule that is still data-driven. So instead of saying it's just a hard-coded set of rules or instead of like it's a person telling it, oh, this is exactly how I would do it, you allow the robots to explore the action space on decisions that they can make and use those learning to shape a more flexible and expressive decision-making agent. So this is really fascinating, Peter. Now, reinforcement learning is not a topic we've talked a lot about on, on the podcast. So can you maybe expand a little bit on that concept? What, what is reinforcement learning? When we think about reinforcement learning, the fundamental intelligent piece that we are solving is decision-making. So you're not just trying to say, just trying to make a prediction about the world. Like what you're fundamentally trying to do is I'm trying to take an action. I'm trying to make a decision in the world that can lead to some outcome, right? So like, what does that mean in the robotic setting? Could be, can I pick up the object successfully? And after that, I pick up the object, like how fast can I move it? Like, so basically the decision on how you contact and approach the object can impact the ultimate outcome that you get from it. So it's an outcome-driven decision-making framework. I'm trying to make the best decision to lead to the best outcome. But what's the biggest departure about reinforcement learning from supervised learning is that notice there's no label anymore. I don't tell the system, look, this is the best way to grab something because oftentimes that's impossible to specify or it's impossible to exhaustively specify. Maybe I can specify that for one type of robot, but well, what happens when you have a new type of robot? Like it's impossible to fully specify the class of actions that you want the system to take. And this is where reinforcement learning comes from. So instead of saying, I need to say the system need to exactly produce X outcome, what instead I give the system is a reward, like something that measures the outcome of your decision-making, right? So then what you allow the system to do is my system can explore, right? I can try different actions. Like I can try to do different things. And some things will lead to good outcome, let's call them successes. And some things will lead to bad outcome, let's call them failures. Like failures could be, I failed to pick up an item or maybe I pick up the item, but it's not very stable. So I dropped the item and that might be a failure. And from all of those successes and failures, we can infer like what are the actions that are good actions and what are the actions that you should do more over time. And that is fundamentally the reinforcement learning problem. And obviously we are discussing reinforcement learning in the context of robotics, but this is actually a very, very general method that can be applied to many, many problems um, that exist in the world. Like whenever you're trying to make a decision and where the best answer is impossible to mechanically specify, but you can measure the outcome, that falls under a reinforcement learning problem. And I'm sure like Peter, you have a ton more examples from um, the many reinforcement learning works um, that you have done there as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the one that tends to come to my mind always is video games where AI agents can learn to play games. It's hard to tell them what to do but they can just see what score they get. And then if they get a high score, they did well and they reinforce that kind of behavior to themselves. And when they get a low score, they try to uh, unlearn what they just did and avoid it happening again. It's so interesting because the, the robots get their own data that way. There is less human in the loop in the process. And often the humans are, are a bottleneck in, in getting data to our today's AI systems, right? Exactly, exactly. That's like one of the major differences kind of between supervised learning and reinforcement learning in general is you're removing more and more human factors in the loop. And, and that allows you to 
build more flexible systems, there was less biases um, um, that people are injecting into the AI's improvement loop. Now, building the AI is, is clearly hard and a lot of progress has, has been made. Can you show us what this actually looks like in deployment? As we came out of stealth, like we wanted to show this kind of AI-driven robots, not just theoretically, but actually operating in a live customer setting that's generating values uh, every day. A customer named Obeda, and they are a customer based out of Berlin, Germany. And this is a robot that we deploy with one of our partners, Canap. And so what this robot is doing um, is doing this order picking operation that we talked about earlier. What we are seeing is that the robots is handling a wide variety of items um, in a robust way and operating at human level autonomy. This is a very complex set of challenges that involve picking more than 10,000 different kinds of items that exist in the warehouses. And so you look at these items, you see like different shapes of boxes, but also different kinds of transparent um, bags that have different items in it. Right? So for example, like, like some of these items that we just saw, like you see this large bin full of transparent bags, like where it's actually very difficult to separate one object from another. But what the system is able to do is it's able to handle all of those and be able to robustly reason about how do I pick up something in a with firm grip, but also try not to pick up multiple items at the same time, like because the customers obviously, like as a, as a warehouse, you don't want to ship more than one product when the customer has only requested one. So one of the tough thing about building AI for logistics is like, what is the amount of variations that you can handle or like, or put it another way, like what is the level of autonomy that you can deliver? Like can your robots work for a long time without human help? Like that is really ultimately the key, right? So if we take it all the way to the other end of the extreme, like where you're only doing one static environment at a time, then you don't even need AI. And so like really the measurement of AI is like how much variety you can handle. There's the robot in the middle. Uh, that looks like a traditional car manufacturing style robot, not, nothing different. So, I mean, where is the covariant brain? So the only thing that comes from covariant is the brain that is making the decision on like what the how the robot should move, how you should make contact with objects and how that improve over time. And this is one of the beauty of bringing AI robots into the world is the approach that we take at covariant allows us to build a generalized AI platform that allow you to plug in different types of robots, different kinds of hardware, different kinds of uh, end defector or the gripper on top of the robot, but as well as different surrounding structure, like right? a conveyor fitting um, items to a robot and then there are multiple elevators that are taking items away. But this is actually not the only form factor that you can build a system with. Like you can have different kinds of hardware, the whole station can look differently, but actually those don't matter to a generalized AI system um, that can make decisions in this kind of environment. So you're saying the same AI software can be loaded on different robots and function across many different robots. Exactly. And then like all of these learnings can then come back and be shared as part of the fleet learning. So like all these robots with different hardware, they can be manipulating different items, picking different items across the globe. And all of this data can come back and benefit each other. Like, so for example, like this robot that sits in Germany might be facing a new item that has never seen, but maybe that item has been introduced in, for example, Australia already. And because of that global fleet learning that allows this robot to successfully handle that item, even if it's the first time that this specific robot is seeing it. 
And as I understand it, it's also possible that at times the robot gets presented with items that no robot in the fleet has ever seen. What happens then? I mean, how does it think about that? I think there are two layers, the two scenarios that can happen. Like one scenario is the system just work. Like, so we call that generalization. Like, so like maybe there's a new type of item that's presented to a robot, or there's a new type of configuration that's presented to a robot, but the system just works out of the box. Why is that the case? That's the case because the secret sauce behind modern deep learning, modern AI methods, is they have a strong ability to generalize. What it means is that it's not trying to repeat and just do things that it has done exactly before. Um, the AI is trying to understand the fundamental principles. Like, so I tend to grab at the center of the object because that's more stable. And if this object has a high curvature, maybe it's on the edge, I should not approach there because it's unstable. It's learning this fundamental concepts um, similar to the intuitions that we have built up in our life and how we manipulate and interact with objects. And so the systems that we build similarly learn those intuitions, learn those fundamental patterns. And so even though you can present it an object that has never seen, a lot of times those fundamental patterns and those fundamental principles still apply. And so like oftentimes when we go into new customers and we, when we go into new scenarios, the system actually mostly work out of the box. But it's not always the case. Like there are always like things that are so drastically different from what it has seen before that the system can still fail to generalize. And in that case, there are multiple mechanisms that kick in. Like one mechanism is the robot's ability to explore and adapt on the fly. Like so, for example, oh, this is a new item that I've never seen before, and I don't know how to I don't know how to handle that. But I have the ability to explore on the fly. Like I, I can try different strategies. I can try different methods. And like, I know there are some ways that would definitely fail, so I will not do those, but there are like other methods that might be successful. And so the, the, the robot has the ability to adapt and learn on the fly. And then the last layer of mechanism is this offline learning aspect. Like, so like other than the robot's ability to learn and adapt on the fly, like all of those um, um, interactions then come back into a longer term improvement loop that allows us to build the next iteration of the brain that have all of those data encapsulated um, and ability to solve those scenarios that it does, you don't generalize to in the first try. I'm always amazed by how well neural nets generalize. Of course, there are, there are limitations, nothing generalizes 100% in any domain, but it's, it's been pretty surprising to me how, how well this can work if, if done right. And the, and the done right is the magic keyword there, right? So like there are, there are ways to build neural nets that generalize poorly, and then there are ways to build neural nets that generalize well. Um, obviously, this is like its own deep discussion, but this is like one of the core plays that we at Covariant Play um, put a lot of attention into. Like, how do you build the kind of brain structure? How do you build the kind of neural net architectures that have good inductive bias that can allow it to like find true fundamental patterns in the world and generalize better? We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Now, one of the things that we've both observed in the last year or two, and that I'm hoping you can expand upon a little bit is this notion where 
I would say the end customers, the partners in, in the automation efforts have really taken to heart this notion of performance-based assessment of solutions. What is that and why is that important? Can you say a bit more? Yeah, very good question. So there are a couple of analogies that we can draw here that might make it easier to understand. One interesting thing about evaluating and adopting AI robot solution is understanding that we are trying to evaluate an intelligent agent or intelligent system. And whenever we try to measure intelligence, giving a test is the best way to measure it. It's just like we would not go into a high school classroom and say people to self-score on how well they do in math, right? I mean, it's just impossible to say, oh, I have mastered all these concepts and it's good to go. No, the only way to measure the real level of mastery, the real level of intelligence is by giving an exam, it's by giving a test so that we can put that intelligence to work and understand where does it sit. And that same principle is behind like how we measure quite human intelligence. And that same principle applies to how we measure artificial intelligence. Like you cannot just say, oh, the artificial intelligence is AI based. Like it learns from its experience, then it's good to go. No, like, I mean, this is meaningless as asking a high school student to self-score on how well they do um, um, on a subject. The real way to do that is to measure it in the test. Uh, and then now there are a couple of questions, like what are you trying to measure in this test, right? So there are a couple core axes that you need to measure in this test. One core axis is this test need to be long enough or have enough coverage or data points in order to be significant, right? So similarly, going back to the exam in school concept, like you will not put a lot of stock into an exam that only have two questions. Like even if like those are two very, very well-designed questions, like people can just happen to know the answer of them. Like the best way to do that is to build an exam that have 20, 30, 50 questions, like so that you know you're actually getting a statistically significant measurement as opposed to just a fluke, as just a random event. Um, and the same thing is true in giving a test to uh, an AI robot system. Like you want the test to be long enough so that you can actually measure, well, how you would actually behave if I put it into a real production um, scenario. And then the second aspect in giving a test to artificial intelligence system is measuring generalization. Like, so what we mean by that is it's one thing to measure how the system does on something that it has done exactly before. Like, so for example, like this object is an object that has seen before and it has like all the time to configure and tune a system. But it's totally another level of intelligence measurement when you present the systems with things that it has never seen before. Right? So like new type of objects, new type of scenarios um, that it has never seen before is like when you really test the AI's ability to generalize. And then the, the last axis I will quickly touch on is the axis of learning, right? So like we have talked about long enough tests to measure statistically significant results. And we have also talked about um, presenting new scenarios to measure generalization. And then the last part is to measure how the system has learned and improved over time. Right? So like as we have already talked about, one core axis of this type of new generation AI robots is their ability to learn and adapt over time, just like a human would. And so the last part that you that we should think about is, let's present some new scenarios to a robot, like it might succeed, it might fail, but we should come back and measure again, like after the systems has acquired data, has acquired experiences on it, and how well it can learn and improve on it. And what's very interesting about all of these is that 
we are seeing more and more sophisticated customers and, and partners in the market getting to adopt these principles. And like one of the recent examples that we have gone through is a picking challenge that ABB as one of the world's top three robot manufacturers have put to, has put together. They find 20 leading companies globally to participate in this competition. And they have basically structured the competition in exactly the way that we just talked about. Right? So this is a long competition that have 20 plus different scenarios and distinct type of challenges that your robot needs to go through. So we get a very statistically significant measurement of the system's performance level and the level of autonomy, like what it can autonomously handle and what it cannot. Uh, and also they kept half of these challenges a secret. So what it means is that like half of these challenges items and scenarios that they present the system with, you actually don't get to know them ahead of time. Like, so basically like you need to measure how well the system does on the spot. And then what they also do is they would run the test again after a day. Like, so like after you have the chance to put it through training and learning, how well can your system improve um, on it? And what is the delta that you can, you can deliver on that? Because of confidentiality, we're actually not able to show um, the original footage on the competition. So what we are showing here is a recreation of the competitions on a set of objects that are similar to what was present um, in, the, in the competition. So as you can see, the objects here span a wide spectrum of industries from CPGs to pharmaceutical items um, um, to food to grocery um, type of items. Basically what they're trying to test is they're really looking for the generality of the system. Like, so it's not just, oh, an AI that can only manipulate and pick one type of items in one type of vertical, but it's like, what is the widest set of items and scenarios that you can cover? And then that's, that's one thing to highlight. Another thing to highlight is what's not shown in this video is half of these items that's being presented to the robots are actually items that the robots have never seen before. And what that means is that now it really stress tests the system's ability to handle autonomously in a changing and dynamic scenario. Uh, and one thing to note out of this um, challenge was that Coverin and the AI that's built by Coverin was the only system that can autonomously finish all of these competitions scenarios without human intervention. So what it means is that the robot is able to autonomously solve all of the challenges while the other systems that have participated were not able to. And so a couple other things that I would like to highlight here is you can see the items come in a wide set of appearances, geometries, but as well as how it's placed. Like some items are stacked against the wall and those items are harder to get to. And you can see the robots employing different strategies to try to get to those items. Uh, as well as you can see some items like apples, like where apples, like there are no two apples that look exactly like each other. And so like you really test its ability to generalize to scenarios that are new. And sometimes you can see the system trying different methods um, to grab um, um, an item and sometimes like changing the configuration of the items actively um, in order to unblock the robots for a higher level of autonomy. So Peter, I remember that that day pretty well when the ABB folks showed up with their boxes of items that they had kept secret and then put them in front of the robot. And a very exciting day, especially because, I mean, everything just worked really well as, as we've gotten used to by now, but it was one of the, the first such competitions that, that happened at the time. Now, everything succeeds, which is, of course, the way it's supposed to go. And that's what a really capable AI robot would do. 
But what happens? What does it mean to not succeed? What does failure look like in this kind of scenario? Yeah, so、um, there are actually a lot of kinds of failures that could happen. Like, so one one kind of failure is the most mild kind of failure is maybe what we call a mispick. Like, so for example, like you want to pick up an item, but like you go to that place, but that turned out not to be a good way to grip the item, or it's a little bit off from like where the system thinks it is. And so in this type of scenarios, your system would not be able to successfully complete that single pick, but like it can try a different strategy in the next one. Um, so those, like, we have a couple examples of those throughout this video. You can see kind of the robot attempted to pick something up, but then like that was not a good grasping strategy, and then it changes that, and it is still able to move on and accomplish things. But there are a couple kinds of more severe issues that would require human assistance. Like, so one example of that is deadlock. Right. So as we go to the later end of the video, we see some of the more extreme examples, like where. We have items leaning up against the wall, like so, which makes it very difficult、um, to reach those places. And when you have those scenarios that happen, one thing that could happen is your system can go into deadlock. What that means is that, oh, I don't know how to pick this scenario, and then I require a human to come in and assist me to solve that. So that's one like more severe kind of failures. And another very severe kind of failures is、um, maybe think of them as double pick or multi pick. A set of boxes being packed into a very dense fashion. Like、right? so, you you see this kind of、uh, arrangement very commonly in a warehouse setup because you want to maximize storage density. And in those kind of setup, the challenge there is after you pack a lot of boxes densely together, then you can easily misinterpret multiple boxes as one item. And then in your approach to them, like you might pick up multiple items at the same time. And so when that kind of multi-pick happen, that again introduce A human intervention or manual assistance step because like the robot is not able to resolve that on its own. So that's another type of quite critical production error that it could introduce. And then there's another type that is quite damage that you can introduce in a system. Like so that can come in the form of robots colliding with an object or robots colliding with other things in the environment that actually makes the robot non-operational or damage the goods to a degree that it require human repair. And so those are some of the kind of error scenarios. That could exist, and like we don't see those directly in this video,、um, but they can easily happen if you have an AI that is not as general and is not as powerful. That's effectively the difference between being able to rely on a robot, one that consistently does the job, versus one that has all these different error cases and just causes more work because not being smart enough rather than helping. Now, right now, covariant robots are helping out in in warehouses, doing order picking, induction. Putwalling. Is there anything beyond that? Is that all the Kaverin robots are going to be doing, or what's your vision for Kaverin? If anything beyond those three use cases, the long-term vision for Kaverin does not stop at delivering solutions for these three、uh, specific applications. And in in fact, what we have built the Kaverin AI to be is a generalized system that can solve all manipulation problems in the world. Like so, we will not be able to tackle all the complexities from day one. This is why we stay. Focus in logistics. This is why we stay focused in these three applications that we talk about. But the underlying technology that we build, the underlying AI capabilities that we build, have extensions way broader than these three applications. So, in the coming months and years, we at Covariant would continue to broaden the capability of the platform that allows us to build additional applications, additional use cases in the logistics space. 
but as well as go broader. Like so, like in the years to come, like we will build Covariant Brain to be a universal and standard AI platform where like other developers can build their domain-specific applications on. They, they just don't need to replicate the um, intelligence piece. Like they, we have a robust AI that could understand the world and make decisions in a robust way. And like other developers can bring in their understanding about the domain and build the business logic and find the right hardware incarnations. Uh, and we see that to expand way, way broader than logistics into manufacturing, into agriculture, into service industries, into recycling, into this set of places where um, robots are primarily just mechanical repetition machines at this moment, um, but can actually benefit from more general AI to unblock them to do uh, more powerful things in the world. So what do you think the world looks like uh, once this vision for Covariant plays out and succeeds? How are our lives going to be different? So one idea that we would like to think about is we would like to make the physical world as abundant as the digital world. Like, so I think this is like one of the properties that um, maybe we don't appreciate enough in the digital world is the creation of bits, like kind of creating a new piece of new copy of software is almost free. I mean, it's not exactly free, but it's extremely, extremely low cost, like which is make the digital space such a space that have created so much value and, and, and deliver so much uh, improvement to our lives. And we would like to make it the same thing. We would like to make physical world to achieve the same kind of abundance, right? So like if we can route and forward physical goods as cheaply as digital packets, network packets can be forwarded and routed, then can we create a world where physical goods become a much less constrained? And if we can make the production of physical goods as easily done, um, as cheaply done, as scalably done as the creation of copies of software, then can we live in a world where we are much less bottleneck on manual labor to deliver on the creation of those goods? And so in the long term, like we think what we are working on and AI robotics in general has a chance to not just alleviate a lot of the repetitive work that is being done, but also fundamentally create a level of productivity and abundance in the physical world that was not possible before. That would be amazing if we can get there. I think absolutely right. There is such a big gap in terms of physical versus digital world. Digital world, one creation is enough to make a billion people happy. They can get their copy and at almost no cost. But one physical creation is, is typically not enough to, to serve billions of people. It's, uh, it's so different still today. Would, would love to get to the point where it's uh, more or less on par or totally on par. It's the same principle as getting excited about science and engineering. Like I think to a large part is seeing the potential and power um, um, of it. I don't, I don't think AI and robotics are any different from those disciplines. Like, I mean, it's, it's newer, like there are more unknowns in it. Um, but I would say the, the underlying fascination should be the same. I would say like one of the hard challenges in starting a company in this space is finding the right intersection between problems and technology. And this is something that doesn't quite exist. For example, if we want to build a mobile app or want to build um, a web app, like where it's mostly about figuring out the business problems as well as the um, 
product interfaces, the, the user experience of it. But what you want to build is largely feasible to build. Like as, as long as you, you can spec a software, it's largely buildable. Um, but this is very different in the, in the space of AI and the space of AI and robotics, where there are a lot of problems that once solved, deliver obvious values, like so self-driving cars, picking problems in, in warehouses, like they are obviously um, economically uh, and commercially highly, highly valuable problems, but how to solve becomes extremely, extremely tricky. And like, there are many problems that just don't have solutions today. And like, so um, how do you find the right um, problem where the technology is feasible or will become feasible, or you can build it to be feasible it's very, very tricky. And like uh, uh, that requires a very deep understanding on both the market as well as the technology in order to do that well. Well, Peter, it's been absolutely fascinating to get to catch up with you in this different format than we're used to. <laughs> we're being recorded this time. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Peter, for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. Now, if anyone listening would like to keep learning from Peter, I highly recommend Peter's blog posts and interviews that are hosted on the Covariant website, covariant.ai. I also highly recommend following Peter on Twitter. That's at Peter Shi Chen. And perhaps most importantly for some of you, you can follow his corgis, Ginger and Wally on Instagram. That's Wally underscore and underscore Ginger. We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.